No, I'm serious. It's really good to see you. Please have a seat. I missed you guys. It was great to finally get back here. John chapter 10 this evening, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. And as we find our way there, just a reminder that here we are, Christmas season, and uh, next Sunday night we will be having a Christmas presentation here, candlelight Christmas service. Um, It'll be uh, similar to what it is that happened last year. And I remember watching the Uh, presentation last year and thinking to myself, I want to see that again, and then also saying to myself, oh, I think me and a lot of other people wish we had invited some friends and family members to come and experience what the Holy Spirit did through it. And so uh, that'll be happening again this Sunday night. So uh, come out yourself, invite others to come and hear the Christmas story and music and narration and different languages of the world, it'll be wonderful. We'll have the whole family in the room. And then the following uh, Sunday, of course, is going to be uh, Christmas Day itself. We will have a single service that morning, 10 a.m., and uh, all of the family will come together, uh, a one-hour communion service. And so uh, bear that in mind if you're in town and whatever is happening in in your life and what is oftentimes a pretty busy uh, season. But wonderful to gather together on that day when it lands right uh, on, on the Sunday. So we come here to uh, John's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 1. Jesus said, Most assuredly, or verily, verily, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold uh, by the door but climbs up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. Chapter 10, and we need a little reminder here, chapter 10 is a continuation of the account of uh, chapter 9, and which had to do with Jesus' healing of the man who had been born blind and was then hassled and rejected by the Jewish religious leaders for simply having become an object of Jesus' power and his miracle, and then coming to faith in Jesus, recognizing him to be the Son of God and to be uh, the Jewish Messiah. And so when Jesus declares what he declares about himself here in John chapter 10, that man is in attendance and uh, a larger group of people are in attendance, including uh, Pharisees who were a part of the decision to hassle this guy about uh, becoming a, a miracle at the hands uh, of Jesus. And the point that Jesus is making here, uh, one of them among many, is that no one is a true shepherd of God who would excommunicate a man for simply recognizing Jesus as the Messiah, as the Pharisees had done to this man. And so now he's going to reveal to this audience, to the Pharisees themselves, to us, what are the characteristics of a true shepherd. Uh, The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Jewish religious leaders of Jesus' day claim to be representatives of God, claim to be shepherds uh, of his flock, the nation of Israel, but they could not have been uh, any further away from what a true shepherd was than uh, than, uh, than they, they were. Chapter 10 is one of the most 
uh, contains one of the most common images of the Lord that is used in the Bible to uh, describe his relationship with us as his people and the image of the shepherd uh, and his sheep. And so the image refills the Bible. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not lack. Uh, being uh, significant in the Old Testament in this regard. You go to Psalm 100, we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Jesus spoke of the children uh, of Israel under this Jewish religious, what uh, Judaism had come un, become under these Jewish religious leaders. He described them as sheep having no uh, shepherd. I think all of this raises the question of why is it that the image of the Lord as our shepherd is such a blessing to people? And why is it such a blessing uh, to each of us as Christians? It really, really warms our hearts to think about the Lord in this way. And the reason is, is because we are sheep. And if sheep recognize uh, anything, what they recognize is that they are in desperate need of a good shepherd. Uh, Sheep, you may or may not realize, are not the smartest animals in the animal kingdom. And uh, uh, they are uh, not very bright at all. And so when God likens us to being his sheep, we can sometimes think that that's complimentary. It is in some regard, uh, but it it isn't that flattering uh, to be referred to them. We think, oh, they're cute, and and Jesus thinks we're cute, or or whatever uh, our estimation of sheep may be. The fact of the matter is, is that they're relatively dumb, even within the animal kingdom. You ever looked a sheep in the eye? Do you have any sense that there's anything going on inside that that brain of that sheep? I mean, it's just like uh, dead there in terms of, uh, of, uh, of any kind of sign uh, of life. And so sheep are relatively dumb and badly in need and uniquely in need of a shepherd, uh, just like every human being. Sheep are also largely defense, uh, defenseless. They're completely vulnerable uh, to predators. Uh, dogs are smart. They have that going for them, especially poodles. Um, lions have uh, claws. They have teeth. Birds can fly. Antelopes can run like the wind. And, uh, but in the wild, a sheep without a shepherd is just essentially a meal on four hoofs. It has no ability uh, to defend itself. Sheep are prone to wander, and to wander for no good reason at all, and to put themselves in jeopardy as a result. If they wander around a knoll or they wander around some brush, they lose sight of the herd, lose sight of the shepherd and the voice of the shepherd. Uh, They are completely lost, completely unable to bring themselves back to the herd on their own. They might as well be 3,000 miles away is on the other side of that Uh, that knoll. And so uh, also it's nothing to see sheep wander straight into danger. They'll wander into a briar patch. They'll wander even over a cliff and then follow one another over the edge of that cliff. Sheep are also very high maintenance uh, animals and uh, they cannot just take care of themselves. Uh, And Philip Keller in his famous book on the shepherd looks at Psalm 23 Uh, said that they require more care and attention in the wild than any other class of livestock. The point that's made related to all of this 
is that a sheep is only as safe and as secure and as blessed uh, to the degree that their shepherd is good. And whatever a sheep may uh, lack in the natural can be overcome completely if they have the right shepherd. And as sheep need a shepherd, so does every single person in the world need Jesus, and we need him to have that position within our lives. I find myself uh, relating very much to uh, sheep and very much recognizing all of my life I have, but especially as I grow a little bit older and to realize how desperately we need a shepherd, someone to lead us in life, someone to protect us, someone to give us the wisdom that we need, somebody to look after us and to think about the Lord as being exactly that to us, and then to be able to look back in our Christian lives and recognize that activity all of these years and for some of us all of these uh, decades. In this passage of Scripture, Jesus doesn't just declare himself to be the good shepherd, but he declares to us uh, exactly why he is the good shepherd and uniquely the good shepherd in, in human history. In verse 1, when he begins with most assuredly, verily, verily, I like it in the old King James, uh, Jesus is saying, heads up to the audience that is listening to him at this point, you don't want to miss what I'm going to say right now. Jesus declares himself to be the good shepherd because he entered, verse 1, uh, the sheepfold by the door. A sheepfold uh, typically was just a walled, whether it was walled by uh, walls made up of stones or uh, wooden stakes or poles leaned up against another, uh, kind of a roofless uh, enclosure into which a flock would then be brought in for at, at night. And sometimes multiple flocks would be brought in uh, for, for the night for the purpose of protecting them. It's sheep, if sheep are vulnerable during the day, they are especially vulnerable at night. So they would be brought into these sheep folds in order to protect them from their natural predators in the animal kingdom and then also from men and from thieves. The sheep in the sheepfold, as Jesus talks about it here, represents the nation of Israel. Uh, a doorway represents, both then and now, the accepted means of entrance uh, into the sheepfold or into a house, but here it's a sheepfold. And the point is, is that Jesus entered into the nation of Israel as their, as their shepherd by coming through the front door. And by that, it, 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 that he came to them according to all of the Old Testament prophecies that were given to the nation of Israel concerning how the Messiah would come to them in the world, how he would be introduced into human history, how they would recognize him, and how he would be introduced into uh, the history of the Jewish nation himself how he would be born in the city of Bethlehem, how he would be born of a virgin. He would be a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and uh, David, that he would be divine, God in human flesh, and so forth. And so when Jesus came to the nation of Israel and he claimed to be their Messiah, he didn't mess around. 
When he came, he didn't come trying to climb up over some wall. He came straight through the front door. He came the appointed way. He came exactly and presented himself to them exactly as the Scriptures had said that he would. Jesus tells us in verse 1 additionally how to identify uh, the religious thief or robber or the spiritual uh, thief or robber. They, uh, and, and he it describes them as uh, coming some other way. So the spiritual thief, the religious thief, he just neatly encapsulates them in just three words in verse 1, some other way. He does not enter into the sheepfold by the door, but he climbs up some other way. Over the history of the nation of Israel, many men had elevated themselves, claimed themselves long before Jesus came to be the Messiah of the nation uh, of Israel, but they did not because only Jesus could. They did not come according to the Scriptures. They did not come in the fulfillment of the prophetic portrait that God gave the children of Israel in the world uh, concerning the coming of Messiah, the fulfillment of those scriptures as Jesus uh, did. They came up some other way, and thus Jesus describes them as thieves and robbers. A thief is someone who takes something that doesn't belong to them from someone else. A robber is even uh, more serious than that because they take what doesn't believe, belong to them and, uh, and they do so uh, by uh, violence. And so Jesus is very pointedly referring to these Pharisees that are in attendance and uh, uh, who, who would use and we're about to use, we're already using, but we're about to use any means of violence uh, necessary to hold on to the position in people's lives that belonged only to the Messiah, only to Jesus. They became the greatest competition to Jesus for the hearts of the Jewish people while claiming to represent God and claiming to represent uh, the Scriptures. And Jesus is... Uh, declaring them to be thieves and to be uh, robbers, even as they were taking that place in people's lives at the expense of Jesus while planning his death, the ultimate uh, act of violence in, in human history. Jesus declared in verse 3, to him, speaking of this good shepherd, to him the doorkeeper opens and... Uh, uh, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them. And when he brings, the, uh, brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. And so concerning this good shepherd, Jesus declares that the doorkeeper uh, opens the door to him. The doorkeeper would have been an under-shepherd, would have been someone who was hired by the shepherd so that the shepherd might be able to go home or or whatever it might be, the under-shepherd would then watch the flock during the course uh, of, uh, of the night and who would open the door on, uh, uh, upon the arrival of the true shepherd in the morning. 
And the doorkeeper here refers to John the Baptist and who recognized Jesus as the promised Messiah. You might remember that he opened up the door uh, uh, to the nation of Israel for Jesus' presentation to them uh, as the Good Shepherd when he called on uh, all of the, uh, the world to put their faith in him. Uh, Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away uh, the sin uh, of the world. And it's because Jesus was perfectly matched this Old Testament prophetic description that the doorkeeper... John the Baptist, and he does so on, the, on behalf of all of the other Old Testament prophets, and he was an Old Testament prophet, and he opened up the door. He had the privilege among all of the prophets to open up the door uh, to Jesus to access the Jewish nation uh, as their uh, Messiah. And so is this long line of prophets that God had sent, including John the Baptist. And so you, you have uh, these Old Testament prophets. They stood as doorkeepers over the nation of Israel, protecting them until the coming of Messiah. And then John uh, 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 presents Jesus to the nation of Israel uh, as he began his public ministry. And so as Jesus' sheep, we can rest in the fact that he is, Jesus is uniquely qualified among all uh, of anyone who has ever inhabited the earth, uniquely qualified to be uh, a shepherd in our lives and the good shepherd. His qualifications are peerless. No one even approaches them in terms of the privilege of, of him being our shepherd. He declared in verse 3 that uh, the sheep hear his voice. And so every morning the shepherd would go to the sheepfold. He would then call his sheep. And the sheep, even if there were multiple herds of sheep there in the uh, uh, sheep herd there in the, the enclosure, they would only respond to the, uh, the, the voice of their shepherd. They would, they would divide. Only the sheep belonging to that shepherd would separate itself from the other sheep and then follow him because of the recognition uh, of, of his voice to then head out and follow him uh, that day. And uh, the sheep familiar with the voice of their shepherd and they would rise up and follow him in much the same way that as we wake up in the morning as his sheep, we hear his voice and we his call to follow him for another day and so we do. He tells us as well in verse 13 that he calls his sheep by name. Now that's something, isn't it? That a shepherd uh, would name his sheep. And uh, that's quite a relationship that a shepherd would have with a sheep. And, and so we know from the book of Revelation that God not only knows our names as Christians, but our names are written in the Lamb's uh, book of life. But it communicates that as a Christian, we're not a, a part of some a gigantic, uh, nameless, corporate uh, something in Christianity. But that Christianity is a relationship, a relationship with a shepherd, and a relationship that involves, uh, involves the shepherd knowing our name, knowing us with that kind of familiarity and uh, with that kind of 
of, uh, of intimacy, and he would call his sheep by name. I've heard him call my name a few times. Usually I'm in trouble, but um, he does know my name. I know that. He tells us that Jesus does that the good shepherd leads them out in verses 3 and 4. In other words, the good shepherd leads a flock. He doesn't follow the flock. He says, I think I'll, we're going to run into trouble today. I'm just going to have, you know, the world's kind of a minefield. I'll just have the flock go out before me. And, uh, but that's not how a shepherd works. The shepherd leads uh, uh, the sheep. And so as a result of following him, we never enter into any situation in life except that Jesus has been there before us and has either prepared the situation for us or he has prepared us for the situation. And that is a very, very reassuring thought and, and reminder within our lives. He leads, we only encounter what it is that he has uh, taken and encountered first. He says at the end of verse 4 and then, into verse 5, that his sheep know his voice. And so earlier we saw that the sheep hear his voice, but here Jesus tells us that his sheep know his voice. And so a sheep uh, will not follow a stranger because they don't know the voice. It's not familiar to them. And one of the wonderful things about being a Christian is to learn uh, the voice of our shepherd Within, within our lives, to become familiar with His voice. So the, the world that we live in, there are a lot of voices, aren't there? I mean, everybody, especially now with social media, everybody's an expert on everything and uh, willing to either openly prove it or disprove it uh, with their posts or their whatever. But We've never lived in a more opinionated or the opportunity for people to share their uh, opinions than, uh, uh, than we do uh, today. And so there's all of these voices. The spiritual realm is no different. So many people claiming to speak for God and sometimes advocating the nuttiest kind of things, uh, false doctrines and crazy kind of things that you just recognize has nothing to do with Jesus. And why do we recognize that? Because we recognize our shepherd's voice. We recognize his voice. We recognize him uh, from the scriptures. And sometimes you'll, somebody will say something and it happens. It's, it's one of these wonderful aha moments when we're brand new Christians and uh, somebody will say something on the radio or they'll say something with, you know, a, uh, with a, a podcast somebody wanted me to listen to from, from some spiritual something. And you listen to it and you go, that doesn't sound right. Or somebody comes to the front door and says, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't sit right. That doesn't sound right to me. And there's that recognition now as one of Jesus' sheep that that doesn't sound like his voice. And we recognize it to, the, to be the voice of a different kind of, of shepherd. And then you walk with the Lord for a while and we get to know his voice better and better. We get to know his word uh, better and better. And then we hear all of this crazy stuff that goes on. I mean, you, if you, it's not, certainly not all Christian television, but a fair amount of Christian television is just crazy stuff. It's just false doctrine. 
and, uh, and so many things that are being said and so many things that people calling and drawing people to themselves. And then you walk with the Lord for a while, you see this kind of stuff, it doesn't stumble you at all, it doesn't move you at all, you just look at it and you, we think to ourselves, that's not true, that's nothing like Jesus, it's nothing like his voice, that's nonsense, and we move on uh, about our business. But it's because we've come to recognize the voice of our shepherd. And that's a, a wonderful protection uh, that, that we have in our life. And then Jesus said in verse 6, Bless, uh, Jesus used this illustration rather, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. Then Jesus said to them, them again, Most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The sheep does not come, uh, the thief rather, does not come except to steal and to kill uh, and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. And so Jesus shifts gears a little bit here, and he declares himself to be the door of the sheep uh, fold. And in his first illustration with the Pharisees, he's addressing the door uh, uh, of the sheepfold, the, the, um, the door by which one can legitimately have access to the flock, to the uh, the nation of, of Israel. Here in this second illustration, he speaks of himself as the door of the sheep. Again, a door is an accepted means uh, of entrance. And so, entry into what? What is he talking about here? Uh, and here he's speaking, as we'll see in verse 9, he's talking about the entry of salvation. He is the doorway uh, and the way to enter into salvation. And so in that day, typically very often a shepherd would uh, sleep across the opening of the sheepfold. Again, there wouldn't be a physical door. The, sheep would, the, the shepherd would constitute the door by, by sleeping in that in that opening to assure the safety uh, of the flock. And so the shepherd would become that door and no sheep could uh, enter in except through him. And in the same way, nobody can become a Christian or a part of God's flock without coming through uh, Jesus himself. And because Jesus is the door, our salvation is safe and it's sure. No predator could get, can get through him as the door of that sheepfold. Uh, it, it, it cannot happen, and it will never happen. When he says there in verse 8 that all who came before me, that is claiming to be the Messiah, are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. He wasn't speaking of Moses and Isaiah and Jeremiah, but those who throughout Jewish history came on the scene, claimed to be uh, the Jewish Messiah, but were not. And uh, they were not listened to by the sheep. And anyone, Jesus said, who declares there's some other way uh, to heaven uh, than Jesus Christ is a thief and a robber. I don't care what religious robe he or she wears. I do not care how many crosses are up. 
in that church. I don't care how many hundreds of years that denomination or non-denomination has been around. If a shepherd says that there is any other way to salvation or into the sheepfold other than through Jesus Christ, then that shepherd is a thief and a robber. They are a, a, a thief in that they rob us of a personal a relationship with God that comes only through Christ and, uh, and then they lead us in, then to destruction as a result. Jesus then contrasts his motive for being a shepherd to us and to the nation of Israel as he came to them as opposed to the motives of, of a hireling in, in verses 9 and 10. Jesus not only saves us, He not only gives us the confidence of everlasting life and eternity uh, in heaven, but now after having saved us in the here and now, he then leads us out into what he calls uh, a life that is uh, to go in and out and find pasture, a life of plenty, our needs being met. As he speaks about at the end of verse uh, 10, he leads us into a life that is uh, a, a life more uh, abundant uh, life. And that's, that's what he brings us uh, into. And abundant is the word for the life that we have as a Christian. How abundantly he satisfies us as, a, as our shepherd. Meets our physical needs. Uh, he meets our emotional needs. You think about the privilege that we have as Christians just as we've done in worshiping the Lord tonight, to be able to set our emotions, which are, need to be well-directed. But emotions are a good thing. We're to love God with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, that is our emotion, and all of our strength. Nothing wrong with it, except if it gets misdirected. And here as a Christian, we have the abundance of not only our physical need being met, food, clothing, shelter, these kind of things, but the ability to set our hearts and our praise and our adoration on someone and something that is absolutely safe, and to park our minds someplace in life that is absolutely pure and clean and safe. My mind never stops. It never stops. It assesses, it assesses, it assesses. It's always working. When I wake up in the middle of the night, it picks up on the problem that I went to sleep thinking about. And it just continues it for a minute, and then it shuts off, and it continues the next time. And what do you do? I envy people that can just shut the thing off. I just have to misdirect it toward crossword puzzles or something else, and and safe and all. But what a privilege it is to be able to set our minds on the things of God. Imagine if there was no God. If there was no Bible, there were no things of God, none of His virtue, none of His holiness, none of His goodness, nothing of Him to set our minds upon except what's in this world. What would it do to our minds? Well, we'd be in more trouble than uh, the, the world is already in trying to navigate this world without Christ. There's going to be problems top to bottom, inside and out in our lives. But he leads us into an abundant life even in that way. Not just physically. Uh, not just in terms of the material things that, that he provides to us. But, uh, but 
uh, the, even these deeper and more important things uh, as, uh, as well. He says the motive of the religious thief, he gives it to us there in uh, verse 10, he doesn't come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. And that is any person who declares that there is any other way to enter into the kingdom of God and a relationship with God, then through Jesus Christ, then they, Jesus declares them as a religious thief who comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. I don't care if they have Mr. Pickwick's face from the Dickens novels, soft and nice and kind and their air uh, with which they present themselves, the harmlessness with which they present themselves, if they direct anyone uh, to any other way of salvation, then they are a thief and the result of their uh, ministry is to steal and to kill and destroy. Again, it robs people of a relationship with God that God has for them, and it leads to death, ultimately to eternal destruction. And here he was talking about uh, the Pharisees and those like uh, them all the way down through human history right into our age uh, today. In verse 11, Jesus said, and then here it is, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep, but a hireling, he who does, uh, is not the shepherd, uh, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he's a hireling. He's in it for the money and does not care about the sheep. And so the good shepherd is one who lays his life down uh, for uh, the sheep. And that's the ultimate sacrifice of a shepherd. And the ultimate sacrifice of a good shepherd is that he will lay down his life for the sheep, the greater will die on behalf of the lesser. The shepherd is greater than the flock. But because he owns those, uh, that, those flock, that flock, every one of us that is a Christian in, in this, uh, this room, God owns us on the basis of creation. Uh, and then on the basis of our, uh, his redemption of us, our salvation. And so Jesus has a commitment to people that nobody else has as our creator. He's not in it for the money. And how does a shepherd, a true shepherd, reveal that he's not in it for the money? Uh, it, it is when his life is tested then in order to protect uh, the lives of the sheep, the flock that belongs to him. And, and uh and, and the responsibility that he has taken on himself uh, for that flock. And so uh, Jesus, of course, in his uh, crucifixion for us, reveals himself to be the good shepherd. But the hireling, he doesn't own the sheep. He has no personal stake in their well-doing. He's just, all he's in it for is the money. And when the choice comes between his well-being, let alone his life, and the well-being of the flock, he says, sayonara, he says, bye-bye, and, and he is uh, gone. 
And again, this would have been very, very pointed uh, and convicting if they were still capable of conviction uh, by the Pharisees. Their only interest in the people was the money that they could make off of them. And walking around in their robes and all of their things that they had to differentiate themselves from the regular person and, uh, and, uh, and declare themselves to be great. And yet they wouldn't sacrifice even the slightest in order to serve them, uh, much less to uh, die for them. And so Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, verse 14, and I know my sheep and them known by my own, as he restates what he's already said. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Speaking of his, his coming, crucifixion is an evidence of uh, his, his uh, commitment uh, to us as the good shepherd. In verse 16, he said, And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, uh, them I also I must bring. And that must is important to look at here. They will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Here he's talking about the Gentile world. And so all the way through, as we went through the Old Testament and getting to the gospel according to John, you saw God communicating his desire, his love for the Jewish people, his desire for their salvation, but also prophecies speaking of the fact that Messiah would come into the world as a savior of the Gentiles as well. And so Jesus speaks here of the fact that this flock that he's talking about, those that can become a member of his flock, isn't limited just to the Jews, but it also includes the Gentiles. Gentiles are non-Jews. And so here we are, uh, for the most part, I assume this evening, uh, Gentiles, and Jesus is talking about us here in verse 16, we've become a part of this flock as well. And Jesus has become our uh, shepherd. And uh, so Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul, in, in the book of Ephesians, I think it's chapter 2, he goes into tremendous detail uh, uh, talking about how Jesus has united Jew and Gentile into one. Uh, by virtue of our faith in Christ. We are all made part of one body. Uh, the world needed a Savior. It needed the, the same Savior, one Savior, and, uh, uh, and uh, that Savior is Jesus, and we all uh, uh, become a, a part of the same body, the body of Christ, uh, as a result, Jew and Gentile uh, alike. Verse 17, therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it uh, again. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. So he speaks here of his coming death and laying down his life for the flock. In verse 17, it's interesting to me, um, he speaks of his Father's, God the Father's love uh, for him. And what he's communicating here uh, is that the religious leaders and no one else should uh, come to the wrong conclusion when he is ultimately hanging on that cross that it has anything to do with the Father not loving him. None of that's in play. 
it, was the, uh, uh, it wasn't a lack of the Father's love for him that he ended up crucified. He said he would lay his life down in order to raise it again. Speaking of his resurrection, verse 18, this beautiful verse, no man uh, took his life, Jesus said, he laid it down. No man takes my life. Jesus gave a clear evidence of this when he was being arrested on the morning of his crucifixion in the Garden of Gethsemane, you might remember, and the, uh, the religious police force came uh, to Jesus uh, with the disciples as they spent the, he spent the night in prayer there in the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus and then bring him through these uh, farcical trials that occurred that morning, and ultimately he would be uh, crucified by nine in the morning. And they went to, when they went to arrest him, they uh, asked about who was Jesus that they might arrest him, and Jesus said, I am he. Literally, he said, I am. And it's the name of God as he ascribed it to himself. And you might remember that all of the soldiers fell uh, backwards on their, uh, their backsides as uh, a result of it. And so uh, that was just heaven's power uh, operating through Jesus, communicating that he could have never been taken for by force, never in a million years, even arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, but he was laying his life down. He said, I lay it down of myself, and I have the power to lay it down. Very interesting. What does he mean by that? I have the power to lay it down. We would think to ourselves, what power did it require, does it require for a person to die? Be an absence of power. What do you mean you have the power uh, to lay your life down as he cried out uh, on the cross uh, there and bowed his head after he said it is finished and he gave up his spirit. And he spoke of the power here required to lay his life down. And I think that we understand the miracle that was required in his raising himself from the dead. But perhaps it was as great a miracle that he died as it was that he raised himself from the dead. Do you realize that Jesus would still be on the cross at Calvary today if his crucifixion were simply a matter of mankind trying to put him to death? The only reason he died on that cross is because he willed to do it. And he said, I have the power to take it again. Again, speaking of his resurrection, verse 18. And speaking of the fact to this assembled crowd that we need not only a shepherd who loves us enough to lay his life down for us and for our salvation and our protection, but we need a shepherd who has conquered death. And Jesus declared that he uh, has uh, done so for us as Christians. And when he says in verse uh, 18, uh, this command I have received uh, uh, from my Father, it is the idea that this, uh, this command was given him by the Father in order to provide a gospel, uh, a good news of salvation that is found uh, in Jesus himself. And so in this, this environment, where you've got this man that was healed by Jesus in the audience 
Pharisees in the audience, as we'll see here in just a moment, here Jesus is declaring to the entire audience, don't trust in any religious leader that tries to take the place in your life, the place that belongs only to God. And, uh, and people would have understood exactly that he was talking about the Jewish religious systems, but not limiting it to them uh, of, of his, uh, his day. Well, the result of this uh, sermon and this discourse that Jesus gave is given to us in verse 19. Therefore, there was a division again among the Jews uh, because of these sayings. So there was an audience there listening to, a large audience listening to what Jesus was saying. And many of them said, he has a demon and he's mad. Why are you spending time listening to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who has a demon. Uh, Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And they go back to the miracle that started the whole thing. It isn't, it isn't just Jesus teaching these things in a vacuum. They're tied to a miracle that only God could do, that not a demon uh, could, could accomplish. And they understood that. And they said, no, we're not, we won't accept the fact, your conclusion, that he is uh, mad. Neither his works nor his words uh, add up to someone who is demon-possessed. Uh, and then Jesus in verse 22, we're told, now it was the feast of the uh, dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter, and Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. And so between verse 21 and verse 22, there's a period of about two or three months. There's a time gap there. The previous uh, events occurred related to the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, here you have uh, winter, the Feast of Dedication, which we know today as Hanukkah, um, the Jewish festival of, of, of Hanukkah. So there they are in the winter. Jesus is in the area of the temple, and, and he's walking uh, in the temple in Solomon's porch. Solomon's porch were, were two uh, covered colonnades that were on the east side and the west side of the court of the Gentiles. And what it allowed then was through the winter months when it would be cold or it would be raining, it would allow people, Gentiles and others, to come up onto the Temple Mount. They would have shelter, kind of like a nice bus stop. They would have shelter to then worship the Lord through the winter season in the area of the Temple. And as a result of that, the Jewish rabbis would then go up there and teach and their students would gather around them in this uh, sheltered kind of situation. Jesus is doing exactly that. We don't know that he's teaching. We're just told that he walked uh, in that area of Solomon's porch. And the Jews uh, surrounded him uh, as he's Uh, making his way there, and they said to him, how long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And so when it says that they surrounded him there, literally they closed in on him. Uh, They forced him to stop and to listen to what it is that they wanted to confront him with. And so they posed this question, 
and, uh, and they're determined that he wouldn't escape until he finally gives them the answer. Why do you keep us in doubt? Why don't you tell us plain, plainly whether you are the Christ? He'd been telling them that he was the Christ for three and a half years, or fully three years. He said it to them every which way that he could say it to them. And, uh, uh, but they weren't willing to accept the answer and the implications of his miracles that testified to the fact that he was Messiah. And so they're always hoping for uh, another uh, uh, answer uh, from him. If you don't like the answer, then just keep asking till you get the answer that you do like. Jesus doesn't have another answer because it's the truth about him. And he said, I told you, and you do not believe. The reason you don't believe in me is not because I haven't been clear to you, it's because you don't want to believe. And that's the issue here, and that's the problem. He confronts them with it. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. The miracles that I've done, a witness, it is God's stamp of approval upon my life that I am the Messiah. You cannot ignore those miracles or explain them away. They testify to the God, uh, God the Father's endorsement of me and, and uh, that I am indeed uh, the Messiah. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep as I have uh, said uh, to you. And so that's the issue. You don't want to be a part of my flock. That's n not only do you, uh, the, 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 the reason you won't acknowledge me as Messiah is because you don't want, uh, you don't believe. And the reason you don't want to believe is you don't want to be a part of my flock. You don't want to leave that position that you've got, the money that you're making, all of the adoring fans, all of these things, and humble yourself just like everybody else to be saved, like everybody else in the world, and then, and then follow uh, me. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So he tells them, you don't want to be my sheep. And he gives us this beautiful description, a very simple description of what a, a, a sheep is in, in Jesus's flock. We hear his voice and he knows us and we follow him. Those are the marks of, of a disciple. And I give them eternal life. Eternal life is not something that we get when we die. Eternal life is something that we possess the moment that we are born again. And I give them eternal life, Jesus said, and they shall never perish, and neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. And so here you have in verses 28 and 29, two of the great verses in the passage that speak to the security of the Christian salvation, uh, that, uh, that, uh, that our, our security in terms of our salvation, our security in this Christian life is not based upon the grip that we have on God, but the grip that He has on us. And He said, I've got a grip on you as a shepherd, and no one is going to take you out of my hand. When Karen and I... Um, 
lived in Napa and before we moved to Modesto and the girls were small and I would take them over to Fuller Park and which was just a block away from where we lived and and there was a Jefferson Street which was the main drag that you had to cross and so teaching them about busy streets and also we'd come to the crosswalk and and I'd say now take hold of my hand and they grip my one finger or two fingers or whatever they could get their little hands uh, around I said I grip it tight and let's make our way across the crosswalk And then, of course, I would grip their hands. And the reason that they made it to the other side of the street had nothing to do with the grip that they had on my hand. And it had everything to do with the grip that I had on their hand. And the same thing is true of Jesus and our lives. The the surety, the secureness of our salvation is because His grip is firm. Uh, There's no other explanation for a bunch of goofballs like me. I won't speak for you. I was going to speak for you, but I suspect you're very much like me. But uh, the, the endurance through all of the things that we've made our way through is an evidence of our grip on him. Stop it. It's an evidence of the firmness of his grip upon our lives. And as if his grip Uh, wasn't sufficient enough, he goes on in verse 29 and says, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. And the idea is the Father has a grip on, on us, Jesus has a grip on us, Jesus and the Father are one in this purpose. In this determination related to uh, our lives, to get us from whatever place we came to know Him in the course of our lives and then into the glory of heaven, they are united together in that, that purpose and that end within our lives. I can never read this passage except to think about the old uh, Allstate uh, commercials that used to be on on the television. I don't know that much about them today. Now they have a lot of ostriches and, and uh, some guy crashing into everybody and all, and I can't make sense of, of, uh, of, uh, of all of those things. But the Allstate Insurance Company, they used to say, the, the adage was, you're in good hands with Allstate. And then there would come this graphic where the two hands come together. And the idea is that we're in good hands if we make Allstate our in- insurance company. And, uh, but our salvation is in the greatest hands, those two hands united together in order to uh, 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 committed to the, the sureness of our presence one day into heaven. And then the, uh, the Jews took up stones again to stone him. So they had a habit of this when they would begin to lose arguments, uh, uh, then uh, let's, um, let's tweet something. Uh, or uh, take up stones and, and stone him to death. And Jesus answered and he said to them, many works I've shown you from my Father. He's done those miracles through me and I, I do them at his, uh, at, at his um, uh, request and for his purposes. For which of those uh, good works do you stone me? So he says, you're going to stone me, then just tell me which one of the miracles you're going to stone me for. And the Jews answered him and said, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself 
uh, God. And they understood very, very clearly that he was declaring himself when he talked about the father being his father the way that he was, that he was declaring himself to be the son uh, of God the Father in a way that is unique to him and uh, would make him divine as well. And Jesus answered and said to them, uh, is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods. And if he, that is God, called them gods uh, in the law, and, uh, and to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, uh, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I say I am uh, the Son of God? If you do not believe uh, the works of my Father, uh, do not believe me. But if I do... Uh, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in the Father. So here he is. He's standing before them. They got stones in their hands and they're waiting for him to back off his claim to be the Messiah, back off his claim to be divine, the Son of God. He doesn't budge on the issue because it's what's true related to him. This passage here where uh, Jesus quotes uh, uh, from Psalm 82 and, and uh, uh, where uh, uh, the psalm says, and then it also speaks of it in the law of Moses, is it in verse 34, is it not written in your law, I said, quoting it here, I said, you are gods. And in that passage in Psalm uh, 82, because it can be con confusing, God referred to the religious judges uh, under the law as he referred to them as gods, lowercase uh, g is Elohim, in the sense that when cases were brought before them and they judged them on the basis of the law of Moses, that they were representing God in that judgment, that God stood behind the judgment that they meted out as a result of that. It also, uh, they were also called gods because they... Um, as the Lord's representatives, they had the authority to rule on capital crimes and to give uh, a death sentence. They had the, uh, the power of life and death. And uh, so he called them uh, gods with a lower case because they represented him in this capacity. That, uh, that the Lord didn't view uh, them as anything other than men uh, it is clear in, in Psalm 82 and verse 7 of that same psalm where he declares to these Elohim, these uh, God lowercase, but you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. And so when a Mormon missionary comes to your door and takes you to this passage here in John's gospel and into Psalm uh, 82 as a preach, proof for their teaching, uh, that if you become a good Mormon and you're married and you're sealed in the temple, one day you'll become a god and you'll have your own planet to populate and so forth. Uh, always take them on through to verse 7. But you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. God is clearly not calling human beings uh, uh, God. And so... Jesus essentially declaring here that if sinful men could be used by God to represent him, 
uh, to other men without the Pharisees complaining at all about it in, in any way, and they accepted God's uh, description of them as Elohim, uh, then how could they complain when he declared himself to be the Son of God and then backed it up with a sinless life, backed it up with the miracles that he, uh, that he uh, uh, brought to bear uh, as well. And so the only conclusion that could be rightly made uh, concerning him here is that the power of God was operating through his life and, uh, and, uh, and, and that they should recognize that and recognize his unique relationship uh, with the Father. And so then in verse 39, therefore they sought him again to seize him, uh, but he escaped out of their hand uh, as, as happens uh, repeatedly in Jesus' ministry. His time hadn't yet come. It would only be a few short weeks before he would allow himself to be arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and go forth to die on the cross for our sins. But that time was not yet. And so he moved away from the situation. He had said what needed to be said to them, to the accompanying a congregation, and he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at the first and where Jesus was baptized by uh, John the Baptist, and there he stayed out in that Judean wilderness. And then many came to him and said, John performed no sign, and John never did a miracle that's recorded at all. John did no sign, performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true. He is exactly, John pointed us to him, and he has turned out to be everything John said he would be. And John declared these things of Jesus three and a half years earlier, and many believed in him there. So you have the opposition of the Jewish establishment, very strong against Jesus in Jerusalem, but elsewhere people with clear heads and less greed and power at the forefront of their mind uh, coming to uh, faith and, and, uh, and belief in him as the Messiah and as the Son of God. And so we'll stop there tonight and we'll pick it up next time. A couple of weeks out, two or three weeks out, we head into um, chapter 11. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Jesus, tonight we thank you for being our shepherd and for being the good shepherd that you are. It would be an awful thing, and many of us can remember it before we came to know you, to be in this world unprotected, uncared for in any legitimate or true definition of, of care and to try and navigate all of this, this dangerous world physically, but a world that is even more dangerous spiritually and in that realm without you. Thank you so much that you have taken responsibility for our lives to lead us, to guide us, to not only bring us into salvation, but into an abundant life. And Lord, it really is an abundant life. And we thank you for that. We thank you for your commitment and to our lives, 
not only for the three score and ten or however many years our life is in this side of heaven, but the commitment that you have made to deliver us one day into the fullness of the glory of heaven. And thank you, Jesus, that you are not only a shepherd, but that you are a friend. Thank you for teaching us your voice. Thank you for bringing us into that kind of a relationship. I don't know what the gap is between uh, a human shepherd and sheep, and I sure don't know what the gap is between you and us as your sheep. But I am very, very thankful, as we all are, that you have found a way to relate to us, to care for us, and for us to have a relationship with you that we could have never dreamed was possible. And we thank you for not only rising again on the third day, but even in laying your life down. We don't know what it takes for uh, deity and the mystery that's associated in all of that for your life to be laid down, but you had the power to do both in order that we might be saved. We're humbled by it, and we thank you for it. And we thank you tonight in your name. In Jesus' name, amen.